0: Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is throne of God, or by the earth, for it is... It is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek... Turn the other also, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven.
1: Good morning. morning. I'd like to begin with prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to meet together, to worship you, to meet as the body of Christ that you have saved, rescued, from the domain of darkness, you've brought us together to worship you, to serve you, to serve your purpose in our generation. I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Increase our faith. I pray that you would also illumine your word. Give us understanding and grace to hear with ears that truly hear, hearts to obey. Pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have some initial questions. getting right into the text. What do we call teachers who teach things that are not true? Yes. Thank you. I didn't think that was too hard. Glad somebody knows the answer to that. What do we call teachers who teach things that are true? a little harder. We it's not that we couldn't call them but, but we don't tend to call them true teachers or truth teachers, do we? No, that seems a bit redundant to us. But why? Isn't that because we expect teachers to teach the truth? It's kind of an assumption. Maybe that's why we call someone who teaches things that are not true false teachers, rather than just teachers of falsehood. That begins to get to the heart of what teaching is about. It's more than just presenting what we think are facts, it's what does a teacher intend to accomplish in his teaching? A simple answer might be to help others know, understand, and apply truth. Truth certainly has an informational aspect. There are things we need to be informed of, truths we need to know and understand. But ultimately, it's instructional. Truth about how we are to think and act In light of the truth, we come to know and understand. Take, for example, Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10. Grammatically, these are statements of truth. They're information. These words inform us about what matters to God and the promised outcomes for those who live in harmony with the principles of His kingdom. But Jesus taught these truths... Not only to inform and enlighten us, but also to challenge and move us, to spur us on to think wisely and soberly. And he receives glory from our obedience and the Christ like character that is formed in us. And then, further in verses 11 and 12, Jesus elaborated on being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He wanted his disciples to know, and he wants us to know, not just that they will be persecuted but that it is well worth it. A great reward awaits. Also consider verses 13 to 16 leading up to today's text. Jesus taught that we are salt and light in the world. This is not just academic truth, something to stuff into our heads and puff us up. No, this truth informs us of his purpose for us being here and warns us and challenges us to think and act in accordance with His will and for His glory. So when we look at today's text, we will be asking similar questions as we look at verses 17 through 18. These two verses are the first part of the four-verse passage that sits as a bridge, I'm calling it, between the previous verses of kingdom principles and purpose, and the corrective teachings and specific applications that follow in the remaining teachings of chapter 5 through 7. As I first began to consider this four-verse passage a few weeks ago in preparation for preaching this morning, I was immediately impressed with how loaded with meaning these first two verses were. And it seemed best to take the passages as the passages two messages. So Lord willing, we will look at verses 19 to 20 next sunday morning i believe that rightly understanding his first two verses is key to rightly understanding the next two verses and then taken together the vital purpose of verses 7 through 20 as a bridge and introduction to the rest of the sermon on the mount can be seen it will be helpful for our consideration of verses 17 and 18 to first get a bird's eye view of the rest of chapter 5 by asking what is jesus the king the master teacher, intend to accomplish in the remaining teaching. In verse 21 and following, if we were to answer the question from our vantage point here in the year of our Lord 2012 and with the whole of the scriptures before us, we might express it this way. Jesus wants to teach his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world how to live out the principles of his kingdom before a watching world. A world that is lost and in need of the gospel message of salvation in Christ. A salvation to be both proclaimed and demonstrated by a company of believers who have been made alive in Christ and who then fulfill his laws written on their hearts. Living as a city set on a hill, a beacon of hope in Christ. The body of Christ on earth, doing the will of Christ, the head, in heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but there was little directly said here in the Sermon on the Mount of these of the greater salvation plan that was being carried out, or of the glory to come and the eternal purpose of the Father. That was just those were just my thoughts, but but again, that's not what we would probably be thinking if we were reading it for the first time, without understanding from the rest of the Scriptures. And the Lord knew that his hearers were not ready then to hear the glorious truths that would be revealed later. Even after three more years with the disciples, Jesus said in John sixteen twelve thirteen, 13, right before he went to the cross, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. But we can be sure that the Lord was teaching here with the goal in mind. He was beginning to build his church from the very foundation. Jesus began in verse 21 and through the rest of chapter 5 to awaken his hearers, if they had ears to hear, to what true obedience to the law requires, a changed heart, a perfect heart, and a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus' words in verses 17 to 20, lay a foundation for understanding the teaching that follows, and indeed, the very nature of the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. So reading verses 17 to 18 again. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Isn't it interesting that Jesus leads with the words, Do not think? It seems he has reason to believe that some are about to misunderstand why he came. Or maybe they have already misunderstood he has been preaching for a while. Jesus knows their hearts. It has been noted by other commentators that there may have been several different motivations and potential misunderstanding. His critics were always looking for a cause of accusation, whether real or imagined. Also, there were revolutionary-minded folk looking for a charismatic leader. We just recently read in Acts 5 as Gamaliel spoke of Judas and Judas of Galilee that had gathered some followings. And then perhaps there were some sincere lovers of God who trembled at his word and so were unsettled by the whispering of others. It may also be worth noting generally, having your own agenda or being committed to a specific cause of higher priority can affect one's hearing of the word. An example of this can be found in Acts 17. The Bereans were commended for their honorable handling of the word. They had an attitude of readiness. They searched the scriptures daily to verify the message. But the Thessalonians, by contrast, were unreasonable and unstable. Paul later wrote to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, verse 21, the first Thessalonians, test all things, hold fast what is good. That's what the Bereans did from the first, and they were commended for it. We need to be careful that we do not let various interests Get a place in our hearts to where it influences our hearing. Keep in mind those words that Jesus often spoke: He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, regardless of the misunderstanding or motivation of the hearers, Jesus declared unequivocally that he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. And then note the phrase, the law or the prophets. In verse 18, you see the word law that seems to be used interchangeably with the law and the prophets. And it often is throughout the scriptures. But we can note that when Jesus said both in verse 17, it made clear that there was no intention of excluding either one. But the main point is that Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law. So what does it mean for Christ to fulfill the law? There's several ways in which he did this. He fulfilled scriptural prophecy, messianic prophecy. Also, scriptures say that Christ was the end of the law. In other words, its object, its completion. Also, Christ fulfilled the heart of the law. First, we'll look at how Christ fulfilled scriptural prophecy. In chapter 4, we find that Jesus was tempted in the desert, and then he departed to Galilee. So we pick up in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. fresh out of the desert temptation, the first thing Jesus does is fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. Then as we look further, he called Peter and Andrew and James and John. And then in verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This too was prophesied. Around that same time period, Jesus returned to Nazareth. If we look at Luke chapter 4, getting at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so it continues. Matthew's gospel in particular focuses on Jesus' fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Quoting numerous passages from the Old Testament throughout the gospel. It's difficult to say for sure how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled because of the subjective nature of someone searching and what they would consider a prophecy. The numbers that I've seen range from 50 to 350, so pretty wide. But the important thing to note here is that there is no messianic prophecy that Jesus did not fulfill. And connected to that then, Christ is the end of the law. In other words, it's object, it's completion. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The NIV translates this. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And then in John 19.30 So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So Christ fulfilled all messianic prophecies. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all the work the Father had given him to do. But there's more. Christ fulfilled the heart of the law. In Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, which is also quoted in Hebrews 10, concerning Christ being the perfect and final sacrifice, then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my my God, and your law is within my heart. And then in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, then one of them, a lawyer, "'asked him a question, testing him, and saying, "'Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?' "'Jesus said to him, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, "'with all your soul, and with all your mind. "'This is the first and great commandment, "'and the second is like it. "'You shall love your neighbor as yourself. "'On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets.'" There are many other scriptures, but we'll be looking at some of those because they can apply to us as well. Can we fulfill the law? Can we fulfill prophecy? They seem like a strange question. But the answer is yes. In many very important ways. And we'll be clear, only Christ is the end of the law. Only he could say, it is finished. But we can fulfill the heart of the law by faith in the power of the Spirit. In fact, we're called to do that. And there are scriptural prophecies that we can fulfill. Actually, there are some scriptural prophecies that we must fulfill. First, how can we fulfill the heart of the law? We just read in Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In Romans 13, verse 8 through 11, Owe no one anything, except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love that your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Confirmed again in James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. In Galatians five, thirteen and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Paul's letter to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, and then it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He who says he abides in Him Ought himself also to walk as he walked. Let us walk as he walked in love. And yes there are scriptural prophecies that we can fulfill. the one I already quoted in Psalm 40. Verse 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. It may not have been written about you specifically in the scroll of the book. This was a prophecy about Jesus. But can you not delight in the will of God? If you are in Christ... Isn't his law written on your heart by faith? The basis is the very words and nature of the new covenant. I'm reading from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, To lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Each one of us that are in Christ has his law written on our hearts. As we delight to do his will, we find the Holy Spirit Working in us to obey his will. Again, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to, to walk just as he walked. We can do this by the Holy Spirit's power as we yield the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God, Romans 6:13. recall I also mentioned that there were scriptural prophecies that we must fulfill. Reading from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them. This was after the resurrection, right before he ascended. Saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now you might say, that's not a prophecy, that's a command. And that's right. And as we obey that command, we are also fulfilling prophecy. After these things, I looked... And behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. Now there's another verse that I think we should connect to this, to the command and to the prophecy. 2 Peter 3, i going to read verses 9 through 12. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That would be all in those nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues that we are commanded to reach. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And how is it that we would hasten the coming of the day of god we don't know the father's thoughts his heart concerning when he sends jesus back to to get us what a hope we have in christ The body of Christ has been waiting for a while. We don't know how much longer. But we do know some things that it it's connected to. The message is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Now we need to do this in obedience to Him. And I mean that by, in particular, obedience as the Holy Spirit would lead us, not just to pick up and run willy-nilly. The body of Christ needs to obey Christ the head as he gives us instructions. But should we not offer ourselves as living sacrifices to do his will, to offer the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, Don't forget that those nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues that he intends to have standing before his throne is part of his eternal purpose. And It is a great privilege, but also a sober responsibility to be involved with that as he leads us. want to leave you with some, some thoughts that are, they're not, uh, it's like a cake not fully baked for me, but I would like for you to just to be thinking about them along with me, and Lord willing, as we come together next Sunday, we will be reaching on the next two verses. Which, uh, among some of the things, I might just summarize that. The purpose and place of the law in the life of the believer. But I'd like you to consider these verses from, from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then some additional thoughts from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Lord made the heavens and all they contain, innumerable galaxies with their vast arrays of stars and planets, With our high technology, we can now just begin (laughs) to see just a little bit of the depth. The Lord made the earth and all it contains. And he formed it to be inhabited. He created plants, insects, fish, fowl, land animals, each after their kind. And then he created man in his image. He did not give his written word to the heavens, the stars, the planets, nor the plants and insects land animals. But he gave his written word to man. We're created in his image. We're created for his purpose, for his glory. So as we consider the word, capital W, the Son of God, the word, the expression of god the word that became flesh this living and active word is living and active because it comes from the word just ask you to dwell on some of that this week so that as we look into the purpose and place of the law in the life of the believer next week, Lord willing, that we will not be just thinking of it as black letters on white paper. Nor will we consider this as a somehow the part of the Trinity. This came from the Word. It's living and active because it can be no else coming from the Son of God. Perhaps that will help us uh, search our hearts and how we regard the Lord and His Word. Father, we thank you again for your word. May it accomplish all that you desire. Thank you for your promise that will not return to your void. We rest in that, and we pray that you would stir our hearts. To think and act in accordance with your will. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.